Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It all started with a cotton swab. Dr. Mohan was the surgeon and Dr. Chan was the anesthesiologist. The nurse was standing there nearby and the patient was an elderly woman. She had no idea that anything was happening because she was out. She was snoring on the operating table. And everything was going just fine. Everything was going as planned. The operation had been scheduled and was underway at the Medical Center of Central Massachusetts. And Dr. Chan had given the patient the anesthesia, sending the patient into a deep sleep. And with the confidence that comes from more than two decades of experience, Dr. Mohan began the procedure. And everything was going fine. Everything was going well, except it seems for our two doctors. Now, no one knows for sure what words were spoken between them, but the intent was clear. These men didn't like each other. And so as the surgery went on silently, the moments passed, the minutes ticked by, and with each passing moment, the tension in that operating room just got a little thicker and thicker and thicker. And whatever the reason, at one point during the operation, Dr. Chan muttered a profanity in the surgeon's direction, and almost without thinking, Dr. Mohan, with utter disdain, he flicked a cotton-tip prep stick at Dr. Chan, and apparently the surgeon was a very, very good aim because that tiny cotton swab, it hit its target smack right in the face and everything that happened next was a result. Dr. Chan retaliated and first came the shoving and then the shouting and then an all out fight between these two guys, these educated men of medicine, fighting with fists flying on the operating room floor. These two grown men, still in their surgical gowns, started wrestling and punching each other and screaming at each other on the operating room floor. And the patient just slept through it all. Finally, when the two men got tired of fighting, and that's what happens sometimes, you just get tired, and they got tired of fighting, they regained their composure, got up, and then they went and finished the operation. Well, there are certain places you never want to see a fight. Operating room would be one. A church would never be one of those places as well. You don't want to be in a church when a church is fighting. It's a painful thing. I've been there. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've seen the pain that it causes. And this is one of the issues that was actually happening in the book of Galatians. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and I invite you to turn there with me this morning. And so far, we have seen four chapters from Paul on theology. Theology about what it means to be free in Jesus Christ. But now, as we start to move forward towards the close of this letter, Paul is telling us how to live free. And this includes a warning about fighting in the body of Christ. Skip down to verse 15 with me for just a second. We're going to come back to this. But notice what it says. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware. 
lest you be consumed by one another. See, Paul was telling them that if you want to close a church, if you want to shut it all down, just start fighting. Keep on fighting. But if you want to learn to live free in Christ, if you want to learn to live in love, keep listening to what the Apostle Paul had to say. And so let's walk through what God has for us this morning in the Word of God. We start back in verse 7 where Paul warned the churches. He said, but you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Now, Paul is at this point just confronting the legalists. Paul is telling the church to stay away from these people. He's saying, be strong enough in your faith to recognize that when you hear someone out there preaching that you have to do more to be accepted by God, you're supposed to actually stay away, not let them hijack your faith. God called you to a life of faith, not to a life of frustration and trying to measure up to someone else's standards. So don't put yourself there. Somebody had tripped these new believers up and Paul wanted to know who it was. And so he asked literally, who cut in on you? Paul is giving a picture of a race in a stadium, and he likes this illustration. If you're familiar with the Word of God, you've seen him use this illustration before in the text. But Paul never used it to tell people how to be saved. He was always talking to Christians about how to live the Christian life. You see, a contestant in the Greek games had to be a citizen before he could compete. We become citizens of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. But then God puts us on our course and we run to win the prize. Paul said this about his own life in Philippians 3, where he said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, you don't run the race to become saved. You don't run the race because you want to earn your salvation or something like that. You run the race because you want to fulfill God's plan, purpose for your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul would again testify in Acts 20. He would say, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, I wonder what the church of Jesus Christ would look like. I wonder what our church, this church, would look like if more of us were living with this attitude Look to the finish of the closing chapters of your life, living for the ministry entrusted to you by God. The Galatian believers, they'd been running so well in their faith. They'd been living their Christian life by faith, allowing the truth of Christ to shape their lives. They weren't sitting around, Paul saying, they were running. They had received God's word and had started to apply the truth of God's word to their lives. Runners are supposed to stay in their lane, aren't they? Runners are supposed to stay in their lane. But someone had cut in. Someone came along in the race of life and bumped into them, throwing them off course, causing them to break stride, making them stumble in their faith. That's exactly what legalistic teachers do to other Christians who are running the race by faith. They add rules. They add subtle little things that people need to do in order to be accepted by God. And they cut in on people, Paul's saying. They slow them down. 
This persuasion, he calls it, this legalistic teaching, it's actually better translated as false rhetoric. It's not coming from God, is it? It's not coming from the one who called them to salvation. God was calling them to run faithfully in the lane that is marked grace. And if you add to the message of the grace of God, your teaching is not of God. You see, anything that contradicts the message of grace through faith, it is not of God. This has been the steady message from God all throughout the Bible, from the dawn of creation. God will never contradict that message. So stay away from anyone that does. And if you don't think this is important, Paul offers this little word of advice right here in verse 9, where he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What they would do, of course, when they would bake bread, is they would keep a little bit of the dough and allow it to ferment, and then knead it into the flour the next time they would bake in order to make that leavened bread. We put yeast in our bread today, don't we? To make it rise. But it only takes a little bit to affect the whole batch of dough. Now, leaven became a symbol of corruption. This is why it was forbidden at the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and for most of the Old Testament offerings. Here it represents in the text corrupt doctrine that had started to spread. Freedom in Christ, Paul is saying, doesn't mean that you let others who come with doctrines that oppose the grace of God contaminate you in your faith. Legalistic teachers, he's saying, are like yeast. It only takes a little bit of their teaching and before long it spreads throughout the entire church. And so this is why we take the time to walk through the book of Galatians, because we cannot let it happen here. It reminds me of the story of a man who was going to bed one night when his wife came along and told him that he had left the light on in the garden shed. She could see it from the bedroom window, and so he went and looked, but he knew he hadn't been in that shed all day long. So he's looking out the window, and he sees a bunch of thieves out there in the shed stealing his stuff. Well, he called the police, but they had the same problem that we have here. They told him that there were no officers in the area, and no one was available to catch the thieves. So he hung up. He counted to 30, and then he called them back and told them, I called you just a few seconds ago because there were people in my shed. Well, you don't have to worry about them now because I shot them all. Well, within just a few minutes, there was a half a dozen police officers at his house. Even the SWAT team was there. They caught the thieves, and then one of the officers came up to him and said, I thought you said you shot them. And the man responded, I thought you said no one was available. Life is all about priorities, right? Life is all about priorities. And watching our doctrine needs to be a priority in this church. Paul would later warn the church at Corinth. He would say, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. If we want to be a healthy church, 
We have to be willing to take a stand for the purity of the grace of God because bad doctrine, works-based systems of earning your salvation or for even growing in your faith, they spread like tumors. They spread like cancer. This is the responsibility of every Christian in this room to keep the church pure in doctrine, based on grace, based on love for God's word. Make it a priority in your own life to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Strong warning in verse 10 towards the legalist. Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul had confidence in these believers. They were in the Lord, meaning he wasn't looking at their lives and trying to judge if they were saved. That's one of the traps of a legalist. Paul's confidence was not in the people. It was in the Lord, in the work that the Lord had done in their lives, that God is faithful, that God will preserve his own. And so Paul had hope that these Galatian believers would read this letter and turn back to grace. But notice the second part of the verse. God will judge the legalist who confuses people. God will judge the legalist who complicates the simple gospel of Jesus Christ or even the simple path toward growing in grace. And that is why James warns us in James chapter 3 verse 1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And there's even more strong words back in Galatians, back in verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. People were lying about Paul. That happens a lot. People lie about people in the ministry. They were lying about Paul, telling the believers that Paul was teaching circumcision was absolutely required. And in verse 11, Paul responds that if he was preaching that you needed to be circumcised, why were the Jews hunting him down and persecuting him? That doesn't make any sense. Why was he being kicked out of synagogue after synagogue after synagogue? Why were the legalists still after him? Because if that were the case, then they wouldn't be offended by his teaching of the cross. You see, Paul believed that the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient to secure our righteousness in Christ. But if these legalists really wanted to add to the message of the gospel, if they really wanted to add circumcision to the message of the gospel of Christ, Paul wished that they would slip and keep on cutting, taking the whole thing off. Now, I don't think Paul was just looking to be crude. I don't think that for a second. I think he was actually making two points here. First, such mutilation of the human body was common in the region of Galatia in the worship of a well-known pagan god. So Paul's just saying here, if you want to add circumcision, you might as well go all the way and imitate your pagan neighbors. Take on their false religion, because if you add anything to the gospel of grace, you're making it no different than the pagan religions of men. Because grace is what separates the Christian faith from every other man-made religion that's out there. We do not depend on our works to save us. We depend on the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us. And second, look at what the law itself even says in Deuteronomy 23. 
It has some strong words. It says, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, if a legalist is going to add circumcision to the message, Paul wished they'd slip, take it all off, because then according to the law, which they wanted so intently to follow, they would be excluded from the community of believers. Meaning just this. His entire point is that the legalist has no place in the church. The legalist has no place in the body of Christ. Don't listen to their teaching because if we're going to live free in Jesus Christ, if we're going to enjoy the freedom already given to us, we need to stay away from the legalistic teachings of men because the freedom given to us is meant so that we can walk in it, which is what he tells us next in verse 13, where he says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let me tell you how this was lived out in one church. It was a church with an awesome men's ministry. I mean, an awesome men's ministry. And for many years, the man behind much of the work was a man named Taylor. Now, this ministry was really impacting people. It was changing lives. Men were leading in their homes, leading their families and walking with Jesus Christ. But things changed in this church. A new pastor came in, and by the time things settled there, Taylor got hurt by his own community of believers, and he left the church. Not over doctrine, he just had some hurt feelings. Taylor wouldn't talk to anybody. People figured that he'd come back eventually, you know, that he'd come back to church, but he didn't. So finally, some of the men in the church took it upon themselves to reach out to Brother Taylor. And so these guys came up with a bold plan. They set up camp in Taylor's yard, 150 of them. 150 men camping in his yard. They set up shifts that would actually rotate and said they wouldn't leave until Taylor came out. They got out a bunch of electrical cords and they'd run these cords from the homes of the neighbors with their permission so they could power up their TVs. They had about 20 smokers and grills, I like that part, cooking up some great, great food. They were there for the long haul. I mean, they just moved in. They even had signs all over the place saying, Taylor, come out. We love you, Taylor. We know you're in there. Well, as you can imagine, Taylor didn't exactly appreciate it. So he even called the police on his former friends. And the police, they showed up twice a day for almost a week. And every time they came, Taylor would come to the door and then he would explain the situation about his church and how he had left the church and it was a big old mess. And every time the men camping in his yard would explode with a bunch of cheers until Taylor finished chatting with the police and then he just would go back inside. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Finally, on day six, when Taylor opened the door for the police, the men exploded with cheers again. And Taylor finally broke down and started crying his eyes out. And he sputtered how sorry he was. And he came out from his porch and he greeted the guys from his church who had camped in his yard and refused to go away. Now, what are we taking from this for an application? To be clear, Walter, I do not want you guys camping out on my lawn. Let's be clear about that. But let me also say this. I long to be a part of a church with that type of love within the body of Christ. And I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there, and I don't even think we're close at times. 
But this is the power of committed love and friendship within the body of Christ. A love that seeks to restore one another when they fall. Look at the wording again in verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. The same God that brought you to salvation has called you to freedom. You see, God didn't send his son to die for your sins just for you to become enslaved again. The flesh, it refers to the sin nature of man. The grace of God should never be used as an excuse for sin. God has freed us from the law, but it doesn't mean we're supposed to live in sin. It means we're freed to love. Don't indulge your sin nature. Don't give in and live for yourself. Do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Do not let your freedom in Christ become a base of operations, he's saying, for the flesh. That's the picture. Don't let freedom become a beachhead for the sin nature. Instead, what does he say? Use it as an opportunity to serve others. You see, Paul is saying this. He's saying, you're so fascinated with being a slave to the Mosaic law. Why don't you become a slave, a slave to caring for others within the body of Jesus Christ? And the key to it all is at the end of the verse, through love, serve one another. If you are living by faith, the love of Christ will be lived through you. Let me say it like this. If you have liberty in Christ, but you don't have love for one another, you're going to live for yourself. Do you hear that? If you have liberty in Christ, but you don't have love, you're going to live for yourself. But if you have liberty and you have love, it will show itself when you become a servant of others. But it comes back to your motive. If you try to serve God without love, you are going to be miserable. Try it once. Try to serve God without love as your motive. You'll be miserable. It'll be torture. It's going to feel like that. But if you serve others because the love of Christ is being lived through you, others are blessed and you live out God's purpose for your life. See, Christ gives us this freedom. You can't get it anywhere else. So why would you live for yourself? If you're not involved in the lives of other Christians, I'm not sure how you are living out your life as God intends for you to live. Love is what motivates me. It's the reason I am here week after week, day after day. Love is what motivates me. Because I've learned this, Christians. I have learned that love is the opportunity that God has given me to live as he wants me to live. I'm free to live for Christ. I hope you discover this truth in your own life because it's the only way that this church and it's the only way that your life is going to become all that God intends for us. Paul is telling us, use your liberty in Christ to reach out and serve other people. We've been saved by God to serve others. There's so much we can do with that freedom he's given. But I choose by the power of Christ living in me to use that freedom for him. In other words, I'm not going to waste my life. I am not going to waste my life by living for myself. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. See, there's a particular kind of love here that sets us free to serve, and that's the unconditional love of God demonstrated on the cross of Jesus.
Because through the cross, we realize that God chose to love us. He chose to accept us unconditionally. This is the love that liberates us and frees us, and it should motivate us. Because now that we know we don't have to try to earn God's love, and now that we know we don't have to try to prove ourselves before God, it liberates us, it frees us to humble ourselves to become slaves, servants of one another through love. God has set us free from that pressure to perform. God has set us free so that we can live in love. Look at this contrast in the next two verses. He says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. In western Colorado, there is a road called the Million Dollar Highway. And when you look at that picture, you think to yourself, it must be named that because it must have cost at least a million dollars to put that thing in. People think that all the time because it was so expensive to build, but that's not the real reason. It's called the Million Dollar Highway because the waste material from the ore in the gold mines was used for a bed for the highway. And not all the gold dust and all the nuggets were removed by the mining techniques that they had when they built this thing. And so here's what this means. It means that there is a roadbed of gold that is worth a lot more than a million dollars. It isn't the cost that gave it its name. It's what's inside of it. And the same is true, hear me on this, in the law of love, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, yes, it costs, but what gives it the name is what it is made of because it is made of God himself, the God who is love. It is God's love at work in you, fulfilling his commands, living as he wants us to live. You see, this is all here in the text to teach us that if we concentrate on loving others as we already love ourselves, then we find ourselves living as God intends us to live. We find ourselves following the teaching of Scripture that we don't need the external law. Why don't we need the external law? Because the law of love leads us to live as God already intends. This fulfills it. You don't have to list out all the commands from the Old Testament and try to keep them one by one. You just need to learn to live in his love. Paul is quoting this from Leviticus 19.18, quoting from the law to prove his point, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a foundational principle. You've probably run across this in Scripture on your own. If you look closely, you'll start seeing this little law of love all over the New Testament. James called it the royal law. Jesus says, besides the commandment to love God with all our being, that this is the greatest commandment, free from the law. Why? So we can live in his love. His love does what the law could never do. It motivates us from within to obey the God that we love. This is the power of God's love. It makes change in our life possible. Now, you could never do this on your own. I could never do this on my own. I could never love another human being this way on my own. It's his love in us. Regeneration by faith produces within a heart the love of Christ that lives in us. And this is why Paul is saying when people fight in a church, they are living completely antithetical to the gospel of grace. 
And so what is he saying here? He's saying, end the conflict. Stop with the prideful, critical remarks. People today think they're so smart because they have smart tongues, sharp tongues, with hurting, hurting words. And all they're showing is that they know how to hurt others. They know how to destroy relationships based on their own pride. That's what people are showing. But love doesn't lead to that. Love does not bite and devour one another. Not in the marriages, not in the homes, not in the families, not in the church. You see, our mouths are like wild animals, Paul's saying, destructive, willing to destroy the reputation of others within the body of Christ. But when Christians go down the path of attacking one another, what are they doing? They're just destroying one another, and they're destroying the church of Jesus Christ. It will rip any group of Christians apart. It's the same pride that is found in the legalist, that is found in the person who likes to tear apart the body of Christ. God made us at peace with him. God made a way for us to live in love with one another, and through that love, we can heal relationships rather than hurt them. We can build one another up in the body of Christ rather than tear one another down. Through God's love, we can help one another to grow in Christ rather than destroy one another. I would say this, I would say in all the years I've been involved in churches, I would say that this is one of the greatest threats to our church and every church because it, it hurts people. It hurts the faith of others. It destroys pastors. It leaves people hurting when they need to come to church and be strengthened. And when we are critical of others, we show that we don't know how to live in freedom because instead we're showing that we have let ourselves in our own lives become slaves to our own selfish emotions and our own feelings, all at the expense of others. It doesn't get much more selfish than coming to church with a smart mouth. Take these thoughts captive. Treat one another with love. Love means you don't lie about people. It means you don't envy them, condemn them, or try to hurt them. Love in the heart is God's substitute for living by the law. So who needs the law? Who needs it? when there is God's love. So how do we do this? Well, verse 16 gives us the answer. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is one of the greatest promises in the entire New Testament right here. One of the most important verses towards growing in your faith in Jesus Christ. The Christians in Galatia were trying to keep the law in order to be closer to God. But the law can't take you there. And you certainly can't get there on your own. If you want to defeat the flesh, if you want to defeat your sin nature, moment by moment, day by day, then depend on the Spirit of God within. Live by the Spirit of God. Because the question is, how, Christian, do you win the battle against sin? Walk in the Spirit, or even better translated here, walk by means of the Spirit, because it is a present imperative in the Greek. And I know that doesn't mean much to most of you, but Paul is saying, keep on walking, Christians. That's what he's saying. Keep on walking. Keep on walking. It's been rightly said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It means if you haven't gone anywhere in your faith since you've been saved by Christ, it means you've never learned as a Christian to take that first step. Step by step, faith in God. Moment by moment, by faith, depend on the Spirit of God. 
Because if you do, you will not live out the desires of the flesh, Paul is saying. Meaning you don't have to give in to that temptation to sin. It's a double negative in the Greek. It's very strong, telling us that the spirit of God and the sin nature of man, they are completely incompatible. They don't get along. You cannot be living for your sin nature and the spirit of God at the same time. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do under your own power. There's nothing you can do under your own strength. How do you overcome sin? Moment by moment, depend on the Holy Spirit living in us, depend on his power. The spirit is always living in God's people, but he waits for us to tap in, to depend on him, to rely on him. And then and only then can you conquer sin one battle at a time. And the more that you learn to walk with him, you will learn to walk in his grace. And then you find in your own life that you're winning more battles over sin than you're losing. But walking takes time, doesn't it? It is to learn to trust God each step of the way. It's a powerful promise here to the believer in Christ that if you take this journey in your life, if you live step by step in the power of the Spirit, you shall not step into sin. But the moment that you step out of fellowship with God, believer, you're going to find yourself there. You're going to find yourself walking in sin. Victory comes moment by moment. And when we fall, we claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that God is right there waiting for us to confess our sins. And then he picks us up. He dusts us off, forgives us, cleanses us, and he helps us to start walking all over again with him. How good is our God? Keep on walking, Christian. Before we close this morning, let me tell you about the greatest rescue mission of World War II. It's not something you hear much about today at all. It was very late in the war, and our American bombers were being sent on the dangerous missions over southern Europe. And they had an express purpose. The purpose was to cripple the oil supplies of the Germans. Hundreds of crews in these little flying tin cans, if you will, soaring through these storms of all that anti-aircraft. Well, many American pilots were shot down by those shells and forced to bail from their shot up planes. And the injured airmen would drift in their parachutes into occupied Yugoslavia, expecting to be captured or killed. But here's what happened instead. On the ground, incredible rescue teams were already in place because Serbian peasants were there tracking the path of these floating flight crews that were coming down in their parachutes. And their sole mission was to grab the pilots and bring them to safety before the Nazis showed up looking for them. You see, risking their own lives, the peasants fed and sheltered the pilots. But listen carefully. These rescued men were in friendly hands, but they were still on enemy soil. They had been rescued, but they still needed to escape. The effort to retrieve our men became known as Operation Halyard, with a secret landing strip that was built and a covert plan that was given to rescue our men. Those Serbian peasants rescued every single airman over 500 in all. But here's where the story gets even better. In order to make it to the evacuation site, the airmen 
They had to trust these Serbian peasants. They had to spend weeks following these Serbian freedom fighters because they alone knew the path to this secret landing strip. Despite the language barriers, the soldiers had to learn that the direction and the pace and even the destination were all in the hands of those who rescued them. You see, the men had been saved from their enemy, but the journey had just begun. They still had to walk in freedom. Hear the truth that comes out of this. To be rescued from something sets us on the path towards something else. And for the airmen, it was a journey of survival, but for us, it is a journey of faith. The one who saved us is now calling us to walk. You've already been freed, believer in Christ, from the penalty of sin. You've already been freed from the guilt of sin. And one day God is going to return and remove that old sin nature from you. Glory to God. But there is no other way to be freed from the destructive power of sin in your life right now other than to walk with him. He's given you everything you need. He's made it possible, but you still need to put one foot in front of the other and you need to walk by faith. You've been snatched away from spiritual death by faith. Christ has rescued us, but now he is pointing us to the path of following him. Paul described it this way in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. He was urging them to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in what? Love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Each of us is in a battle, in a war that rages with our own sin, our own struggles, the person that we used to be before Jesus Christ still tries to gain a foothold in our new life and trip us up. But the Holy Spirit stands ready, empowering us to walk moment by moment to freedom over sin. Live in his love for one another. Live by his power. Embrace the freedom to live for him because sin has lost its power over us. And take some comfort from this. Take hope knowing that Christ has already secured the victory. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.